Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 105 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, guest geeks James Sutter and Wendy Wagner will be joining us to discuss Dungeons & Dragons media tie-in novels. But first up, we've got an interview with legendary game designer Richard Garriott, a.k.a. Lord British. His long-running Ultima series of computer role-playing games are considered by many the high-water mark of interactive entertainment. In the early 90s, financial pressures forced Garriott to partner with Electronic Arts, which led to the demise of Ultima. After further adventures which included a trip into outer space and another ill-fated partnership with a large publisher, Garriott turned to Kickstarter and successfully raised over $3 million to help fund his new game, Shroud of the Avatar, a spiritual successor to Ultima. And now, here's our interview with Richard Garriott. All right, so we're here with Richard Garriott. Welcome to the show. Hi, David. Good to be here with you. All right, so your Ultima games are absolutely my all-time favorite video games, and they really had a big effect on me as a kid. And in college, I actually studied mostly law and ethics, and I really traced my interest in those subjects back to my years spent playing Ultima. And I imagine that you must hear a lot of stories like that. So do any stories stand out in your mind about your games having that sort of big influence on people? Uh, you know, actually, it does. And um, uh, and there's a couple stories, uh, one in particular that, that I love uh, the occasion to be able to retell which was shortly after Ultima 4. And uh, if you're an Ultima fan, you must remember that, you know, Ultima 4 was the first time that, uh, uh, especially in the Ultima series, but frankly, I think in any role-playing games on a computer, that they went from just being a slog of fighting monsters and collecting treasure to being a game that both espoused virtuous behavior and also judged you as you played the game as to whether you were playing in a virtuous manner. And uh, the only way to really win the game was to behave uh, in a, a reasonably virtuous way, according to the rules of the game. And, um, uh, and when I was building that game, you know, my team and my family were fairly skeptical. They, they thought that, you know, trying to make a preachy type of game, as they would say, uh, you know, might actually hurt its possibility of success. Uh, but when that game came out, it was actually my first number one best-selling Ultima, and I think really put the series on the map. And the, uh, I received a letter uh, shortly thereafter from a mother uh, of a young girl who she had bought Ultima 4 for. And she knew that she had never played Ultima, but she knew that it was popular based on its sales and marketing. And her kid had heard of Ultima before. But since she was you know, trying to be a good parent and kind of observe and participate in whatever her young child was playing on a computer, uh, she sat with her young daughter uh, while she played Ultima 4. And she was so touched by how this touched her daughter that she wrote me a letter that basically said, uh, you know, hey, Mr. Garriott, you know, I, I felt compelled to reach out to you because I have to tell you that my daughter has had a problem uh, with, you know, lying and stealing and you know, other things as, uh, as might be uh, normal for a parent to face uh, with some children. Uh, and I have to say, when she played your game, she, of course, immediately fell into those same habits of lying and cheating to the characters in the game. But then I noticed how your game brought those behaviors full circle. And, uh, and my daughter, you know, was forced to face the, the ramifications of that behavior. And she learned to, uh, reevaluate her own behavior, not only in the game, but in the real world. 
And so she, uh, you know, was, was extremely thankful uh, that uh, and and happy that she had bought Ultima Four for her child because she felt that it really did have that sincere positive impact in her child's life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, just reading comments from people online, I came across a lot of people who said that as kids, they they almost adopted the eight virtues as their religion. Um, how do you feel about that? I mean, how do you feel that the eight virtues holds up after all these decades as a, a system that people should um, try to follow? You know, what's interesting is, of course, the eight virtues are sort of by definition fiction. You know, I, I, I wrote them uh, not on a quest for the truth of the universe, but rather to fulfill a need. Now, what's interesting about that, though, is that, you know, when I decided I want to write a game about virtue, I went through a process. And I, the process started with me sitting down with, um, you know, what classical philosophy existed that I might pattern after. And you do things like say, okay, well, shall I use, for example, the Ten Commandments? Are the Ten Commandments, you know, what my game should espouse as the universal truth of the way to behave? And at least for me, I looked at that and said, well, you know, I, that one's not only a bit dated, but in my mind, hmm. it was somewhat incomplete and somewhat duplicative. Uh, and at least from a gaming standpoint, you know, I couldn't figure out a way to make it work. And then I said, okay, well, how about the Seven Deadly Sins? Is it, am I working against the Seven Deadly Sins? And while a lot of good horror movies, you know, use that as their uh, basis, you know, when I was trying to write a game uh, about virtue, uh, again, I, I, these came up uh, uh, shy of what I felt would would work. And so then I said, okay, I really have to invent a virtue system from scratch. I really need to find out what are the fundamental virtues of life. And so I, I sat down and I uh, began a very extensive research project. I, I bought all kinds of philosophy books. I uh, read through many. Uh, and I began to see patterns in it. And I began to you know, take post-it notes on a whiteboard and organize things that motivated people to good and bad behavior uh, up on a wall and then began to put things near each other that kind of were different ways to say the same thing or included elements of each other to try to find a universal set. And that's when I originally came out with the three principles, truth, love, and courage. And, uh, and I, I noticed that Almost anything else I had on that board, I could say was due to the presence or lack of one of those three cardinal virtues. Uh, but three didn't seem like enough. And so what I did is I used all the possible permutations of those three to come up with eight. And then I used those, I found the best word that I could that matched up with those eight. Um, and so even though what I've just described to you is a, you know, is, is a fictional process, uh, I believe strongly in the research that I did in order to come up with that. And the, and the longer I've sat with it down through these decades, the more I've noticed that other people writing, uh, you know, issues uh, about virtue uh, or doing analysis of, of virtuous behavior in the modern, in a modern way are often coming to a similar conclusion, if not the same conclusion. There's even, uh, there was a site I found the other day uh, called uh, what I needed to learn about life, I learned in a video game. And it's all about the eight, the eight virtues of Ultima. And uh, you know, where they're talking in depth about why they, they uh, have concluded after not only playing it, but then you know, growing up to adulthood uh, and reflecting on it, think that, uh, in fact, those virtues really are a pretty sound uh, foundation, which I've grown to believe as well. So when you were studying all the philosophy, were there any particular philosophies or philosophers that you particularly admired? And do you have a 
favorite approach in terms of deontology or consequentialism or virtue ethics or any of those sorts of things? Uh, well, there were kind of two parts that, uh, that two different aspects, uh, I think, that I leaned on the most. Interestingly, uh, Buddhist philosophy is absolutely my favorite. You know, it's, uh, and while you won't see the pattern in uh, my virtues that comes from uh, Buddhist, uh, uh, the Buddhist approach, what I liked about the Buddhist approach was, you know, it's not doctrine as much as it is uh, organized, rational thinking to determine a philosophy uh, that's mutable. And, uh, and so the more I read about the way in which Buddhist philosophy is derived, you might say, uh, the more I began to lean on that as a process. Uh, then as I started coming up with my specific three and then eight virtues, I then uh, began to look for uh, writings on those subjects. And uh, interestingly, there's a writer, a poet, actually named Khalil Gibran, who writes lots of little short stories and quotes about virtue and vices and life and love, etc. And uh, and I found him his work to be the the way I managed to pull uh, thought bubbles, you might say, or w w angles or ways to look in a very short, succinct way at a virtue. Uh, I found his writings to be uh, to be particularly useful. Although I drew from many, many other sources as well. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned how Ultima 4 had such a positive impact on this little girl whose mother wrote in. Do you think that games like Ultima, that sort of ethics simulator, is something that should be assigned reading in school and the kind of thing that just should just be the part of every child's upbringing? Well, it's interesting you mentioned that. I mean, I've, that's, I've never heard anybody propose that before, but I like that a, a lot. You know, if you, I was talking with my, my wife, who's French, and you know, one of the things about French school is they do that a great deal in school, uh, more even than in America where they'll, you know, assign the class a, uh, effectively an ethical parable story and then sit down and analyze the hows and what's and whys of that ethical parable. And um, one of the things I've grown to learn is that role-playing games are foundationally extremely powerful teaching tools. Frankly, whether you like it or not, it's a good teaching tool. And that has at least made me very acutely aware of and paying attention to the nature of that teaching, the nature of the content uh, that I put forth in my games. Uh, once I began to learn that people were reading so deeply into uh, you know, what I was putting on the page. Mm. And you have a child now, I think, right? Are you going to uh, force your child to play through all the ultimate games? As sort of <laughs> well, uh, if she doesn't uh, play through them all, she'll have to join me in making them. <laughs> uh, so, uh, uh, but uh, by all means, uh, you know, what's interesting is you know, I've, I've been contacted a lot now that we've been developing Shroud of the Avatar. I've been, people have gone back and, may, and whether they're doing this only now because they've been inspired because I'm going back to my roots myself or whether they're just telling me about it now, I, I don't really know. But people are now circling back and playing those earlier games and then writing to me about it. And they're saying, look, I've, I've decided I'm going to play through Ultimas 1 through 9 and uh, uh, and I'm and they're blogging and, and, and tweeting and uh, sending me direct, uh, you know, questions and comments about that experience. So as a community, we're sort of all reliving uh, that whole cycle again, and it's at, le at least reminded me uh, how strong uh, of a story uh, and the impact of those stories, you know, Ultima's, uh, you know, four, five, six, uh, seven in particular uh, had. Yeah, and uh, I mean, Ultima four 
I can't think of another game in which ethical self-improvement and achieving enlightenment is the whole point of the game. I mean, are there other ones that you know of? And why do you think that there aren't more? I agree with you. I think it's the only one. Um, and, uh, and again, that was, of course, the thing that was debated so hotly at my company is whether that was the, uh, would spell doom for the product since there, <laughs> since there was no real winning in a classical way of defeating a, a bad guy. And um, why there's not that in particular, I think, is hard to say. But why there's not very many deeper stories at all, I think, is easier. And I'm also, I also think that most games, including role-playing games, don't have that much story in them. You know, I think a, gr a great case study to show how true that is is when you look at movies made from computer games. You know, a computer game is really about an environment and combat as much as anything else. And so pretty much any movie that's been made on a game has not only been bad, but it's had very little to do with the game because there's really there's no content in the game that's worth retelling in a, in a movie, uh, generally speaking. And so, uh, and I think the reason why that has remained so true for these decades is that, uh, you know, the platform that we're building on top of continues to evolve so quickly that just to make a first person shooter that takes advantage of the astounding new capabilities of the hardware is work enough. And it's only during fairly stable points in the technology that people go, well, to compete with that fairly simple gameplay, I need to make something deeper. And so games get deeper and deeper while a platform is relatively stable. But then as soon as there's a new radical improvement in the platform, games reset to fairly simple gameplay that really shows off all the great new bells and whistles of the technology. And so I'm hopeful that now that we've sort of reached the era where we're not having to reinvent the camera, we're not having to reinvent the pipe, the render pipeline and the art importation tools and, uh, you know, the AI systems and the user interface systems, we're not, you know, it used to be for every single game, we'd reinvent all those things from scratch. And we're finally to the point where we don't have to reinvent all the pieces from scratch. And that is allowing uh, developers to finally focus on making games deeper, which I think is going to really help those stories. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so the, the Ultima series creates this virtual environment in which virtue is rewarded, in which being virtuous is the way to win the game. But I think a lot of people would argue that the real world doesn't operate that way. Uh, we have sayings like nice guys finish last and no good deed goes unpunished. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you think about that tension between, you know, wanting to create a virtual world where virtue is rewarded and acknowledging that the real world often doesn't work that way? Well, I think that, first of all, most good books and most good movies and I would therefore then argue about most good computer games, not all, most, you know, are aspirational fantasies, not the harsh truth of reality. You know, I reflect regularly on some of the business partners that we've dealt with through the years who I think of as fairly unscrupulous that have succeeded despite their, uh, you know, at the very least being mean-spirited and at the, at the most kind of purposely pushing the edges of, of, of legality in order to uh, compete and win. Uh, and, uh, and, and when I talk with a lot of those people very straight up about this sort of thing, they're going like, hey, this is business. It's a competition. And if, you know, if the way for us to get ahead is to harm you, then that's what we need to do is harm you. And, uh, you know, and I, and I look at that and I go, boy, that just feels to me is unethical. Uh, but I, but so, so people's concern that the real world does have some of that in it. I, I think the real world does have some of that in it. On the other hand, I tend to be an optimist. I tend to think that, uh, while being the bad guy can lead you often to more immediate success, 
uh, I think the strongest companies, the strongest individuals, the strongest products are those that adhere to the more virtuous path. I mean, you you, you think about um, uh, you know almost uh, any big hundred year long lasting company has probably had an era of up and down and even of uh, moral or virtue drift during different eras of their uh, their history. And and while uh, more mean-spirited, if not uh, you know, uh, bad guy leadership uh, ha- may have given them a temporary surge, uh, I-, I do have a, a personal belief that uh, fundamentally uh, human beings need to work in supportive communities in order to succeed. And so, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the good guys can finish first, uh, but not necessarily every time. Mm. I mean, um, back in episode 84, we were talking about what our ultimate video game would be. And I don't know if you've read Game of Thrones or watched the TV show, but I was saying a video game I would really like to see would be something like you're Ned Stark and you show up in King's Landing and you're uh, sort of thrown into this court intrigue. You don't know, don't know who to trust. And I think one thing that's really interesting about Game of Thrones is that Ned Stark tries to be as virtuous as possible, and that creates a total catastrophe. And I would just wonder, would you, do you think you would ever create a, a game or an ethical simulation like that where doing the well, virtuous thing led to Absolutely. In fact, I've, I've sort of tried to already traipse around that a bit. Um, and let me describe how, how that has at least worked in, in my world. Um, you know, Ultima 4 was, as, you, as we've discussed, you know, the game about being virtuous. And you are going to, you know, there is no bad guy. You are going to succeed or fail purely based on what an example you uh, uh, create, uh, how good an example you create for, for the people. That's, what, that's your job is to be the first knight, be the one worthy of admiration of everyone to show what it's like to be, you know, uh, truthful and loving and courageous. But in Ultima 4, the game is also fairly black and white. In other words, as soon as you know that that's the case, you just quit doing evil things and eventually it'll work out for you. But when I finished that, I said, even I said, okay, that's really not the way the world really is. You know, in the real world, there's lots of people who claim to be good, but I would argue are not. And I'll pick on one broad category uh, that uh, I may not be picking on all of these people fairly, but I would argue that in many cases, television evangelists Mm -hmm are people who, whose job it is to appear to be the most positive, well-meaning people that exist. And yet many, many, many of them have been taken down for doing things like uh, using earpieces and communication pieces to uh, have revelations about members of their audiences, to use shills in their audiences to have magical spiritual healing, uh, et cetera. And I think most anybody who would look at that would go, okay, those people are actually evil. Um, and in my mind, the real world is filled with that. The, the real world is filled with both people who claim to be good and look good and maybe have some aspects of what they're doing that are good, but are really deep down rooted in something more sinister. And on the other hand, there's people who are just angry or hungry or uh, spiteful for whatever reason that in the end really are, uh, you know, uh, uh, could be relied on to make the right choice if something really important came up. Uh, and so with Ultima 5, I tried to bring that more that gray area of reality and uh, to where and whereas in ultima 4 anybody that says i'm here to help you probably was really there to help you in ultima 5 that was not the case and then 
with Ultima 6, I began to, to reach into things like racism. Uh, and what I did with Ultima 6 is I, I brought in a race of beings that are, look very demonic. They have horns, they have leathery wings, they have long claws. Uh, and, and in fact, they set up, you, you, you enter the game at a battle where they're actually trying to kill you. Well, that's pretty good evidence to say those guys are bad guys. They look like bad guys. They're acting like bad guys. They must be bad guys. And but then again, you know, there's all kinds of reasons to have a conflict that has nothing to do with whether someone who's right or wrong. And there have been conflicts where both sides honestly believe they're right. And the history, historical analysis, you know, the winner doesn't necessarily mean that they were the one on the right. Uh, and uh, and in this case, I set it up by by creating these gargoyle-like evil creatures. Um, I set you up to assume that they were evil, when in fact they have families and literature and science, and their grief with you is associated with things that the human society has been doing against them over time. And so, uh, uh, so in fact, the way to lose the game is to win the battle. Uh, the way to win the game is to forge peace. Mm -hmm. No, and I, I absolutely agree that the stories of Ultimus 5, 6, and 7 uh, involve a tremendous amount of moral complexity, and that's one of the things I really love about them. Uh, but more or less, the Avatar is expected to act virtuously throughout those stories. And I guess I think that changes a little bit in Ultima 8. It does. It does. And again, 8, uh, you know, 8 had some problems in the sense of um, uh, it was uh, uh, pushed out the door, you know, uh, incomplete in my mind. Uh, so, so I wish we had sat on that one for six more months uh, than we were allowed. But, uh, the, but you're absolutely correct that what I, that, that what Ultimate's story was is I sat down and said, "Well, what do you do if the rules of society around you don't support these virtuous and ethical uh, behavior?" Uh, you know, it, it's perfectly fine to say I want to always be truthful and honest and loving and kind, but if those are not appreciated and and repeated by those around you. Uh, what do you do about it? And uh, it was sort of my, you know, it, when do you choose to fight fire with fire? When is it okay to set aside your own uh, moral or virtuous beliefs, your ethical beliefs, and and live like the locals as a way of survival? And um, uh, and without trying to pass judgment on it, I at least tried to explore it by saying, you know, there there are times when. You know, if, if you just decide to stand your ground, you're just going to be killed and that's going to be the end. And, you know, and if you think that's the right choice, well, OK, it's going to be a short game. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I heard you describe the theme of that uh, game. You said something to the effect of when you find yourself in a world where devil worshiping is normal, then that's what you have to do. Oh, I, I, I may have done. I may have said literally that. I don't remember that exact quote, but that's that's not far from my thinking. Um, you know, and in fact, uh, another thing I did with this, I did not do this in all of, of my games. I don't know if you're familiar with the, uh, the Ultima, uh, pattern of having a room that often involves <laughs> the death of children. Yes. Okay. Well, well, this, this started with Ultima four, but, uh, but things like it continue to this day and, and it, this provocation of uh or pushing you the player out of your comfort zone is something i now do very purposefully um and in ultima 4 where it came about is the last dungeon that you had to fight your way through uh was intended to kind of test you once and for all on all of your aspects of virtuous behavior and i made it room where there were cages in the corners 
and a lever in the center of the room that if you move, if you pull the lever, oh, and, and the cages, by the way, were full of small children, and if you pulled the lever, the cages would be opened. But in fact, they weren't children in the sense of nice, pleasant little human ch children. What they were is uh, these were monsters that looked like children. And so they would swarm around you and attack you. And I knew that the player would would wonder what they should do because at this point, they're right at the end of the game. Hmm. And they would be worried that if I kill the child, I might lose part of my virtue points, which would mean I'd have to start over this whole dungeon. So what do I do? And to me, that was the beginning and end of it. I didn't care what they did because in fact, it wasn't a test. It just looked like a test. And so, but I knew that people would be trying to figure out what to do. And there were other things you could do. You could charm the children and make them run away. You could put them to sleep. Uh, if you dropped your sword and, and hit them with an open hand, they would be hurt and run away. Uh, you could not pull the lever. There were all kinds of things you could do, but, uh, uh, but I knew at least would cause this mental anguish on the player. And it's, and it's so hard to cause a, an emotional reaction of any kind in a game that I was very proud of myself when I built this, this little test. And, uh, but when the game was being playtested just before its release, one of our QA testers wrote a letter, played that room, and then wrote a letter to my brother, who was my business partner, and said, I refuse to work for a company that so clearly supports child abuse. I was just about to finish this game, and I actually had to beat up children in order to win the game. I'm pissed off. I demand that you remove this from the game, or I quit. And my brother came to me and said, Richard, you know, what have you put in the game? And I'm going like, I don't even know what he's talking about. And we had to go look it up and say, oh, it's this room. And uh, Robert said, oh, you, gotta, you have to take it out of the game. And I said, no, you don't understand. The fact that I've provoked this level of emotional reaction is incredible. And in fact, this guy is wrong. You don't have to kill the children. You can charm them, put them to sleep, don't pull the lever, you know, all kinds of other, there's plenty of other solutions. And, but I was excited by the fact that I had made this level of provocation. But my brother tried to get me to take it out. My parents tried to get me to take it out, but I left it in the game and I do things like it now all the time. <laughs> Yeah, I, I sort of wonder to what extent some of these things were intended to be provocative. I mean, like the um, the box for Ultima Three, the the box features this big demon monster and yep. has the word Exodus, this this word out of the Bible. And this is at the height of the Satanic Panic of the nineteen eighties. Um, were you intending to be provocative with that, or just kind of going? Uh, about interestingly, your for Ultima Three, that was not intended to be provocative. By the time we got around to Ultima Eight, it was purposely provocative. Um, it was happens chance uh, early on. But for example, um, you know, if you, if you go to a movie, it is not uncommon if you go to a scary movie to see a pentagram on the floor with candles in the corners and people pretending to do magic. And so in Ultima 8, I wanted to put pentagram and did put pentagrams on the floor. You set candles in the corner and you perform magic. And immediately I got a, a negative response from both the outside and employees. I had employees quit over what I just described to you. And it's interesting how the religious right often will look at this. They'll look at that and go, well, I, I'll even ask. I'll say, why is it okay in a book? Why is it okay in a movie? And why is it not okay suddenly for me? And their answer usually is, it's okay to read about it. It's okay to write about it. It's okay to make a film about it. What's not okay is to pretend you're doing it, even if you're play acting, because that invites the devil into you. To which I go, well, at least I understand your rationale. I just don't happen to agree with it. Uh, and just like I, you know, in all of the, and leading up to that, I was constantly doing things like, you know, j just like I was trying to, like with the, with the game about the gargoyles, trying to show you that you personally can be racist. If I set up the right, you know, set your bigotry up with a, 
by hiding his proper details and, and expressing certain details in a way that defeats your filter of, of trying not to be. And similarly, I think about pentagrams. I think they're, a pentagram is just a symbol as far as I'm concerned. And, uh, uh, and the fact that some people find it uncomfortable, I would like to show them that, by the way, well, you can write a game about virtue. You can write a game that is going to help your children grow up to be happy, healthy, positive adults, and that will not harm them. And so I like this being this provocateur that uh, takes people out of their comfort zone to try to uh, shake them up to be a more thinking, rational being. Mm -hmm. uh, I actually heard you say that your sister-in-law is a fundamentalist Christian and stopped talking to you. Yeah, it's, uh, it's actually one of the, it's actually a uh, fascinating and tragic story um, that uh, what really got me started in my career is three things. Uh, when I was in high school, within one year, uh, my sister-in-law gave me a copy of Lord of the Rings. The game Dungeons and Dragons was published, and uh, uh, and the personal computer was invented, the Apple II computer. And those three things obviously melded in, in my mind deeply, and it, and I immediately began to to manifest these fantasy games. You know, so my my sister-in-law was thrilled that I loved the book that she gave me, and then she was immediately horrified. That I began to make games based on the book she gave me. Uh, so horrified that literally she is she believes that I am doing the devil's work and and converting ch children to devil worship. Uh, she disowned me, and then slowly she disowned the rest of the family. So she actually doesn't speak with any of the rest of the family. Uh, the rest of the family has all worked with me or in some association one way or another down through time. And so uh, uh, my oldest brother and his wife, my sister in law. Uh, are now uh, almost completely estranged from the rest of the family uh, by their choice, uh, largely over the fact that they think uh, fantasy role-playing games uh, you know, are doing the devil's work. So have you gotten a lot of letters over the years from uh, players who converted to devil worship after playing your games? <laughs> uh, not a one. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, oh, no, in fact, uh, you know, it is interesting that I, I do occasionally, in fact, that Ultima 3 cover that you said, did I do that one on purpose? Uh, that, uh, that I did get a couple letters about that um, because they just saw the image on the cover and assumed it was something devil worshipy. To which, by the way, the inspiration for that cover came from Disney's Fantasia. Uh, you know, if you remember Disney's Fantasia, it has a big demon standing on a rock in a fire pit, and uh, and Ultimate Three's cover is a big demon sitting on a rock in a fire pit. And uh, and so I thought it was hilarious that you know Walt Disney, which is kind of seen as the uh, you know, most one of the most wholesome, positive American icons around. Uh, you know, I, I use the same image, and I'm called a devil worshiper, and uh, and so I, I really think it just goes to the hypocrisy of the people with this attitude. And pretty universally, those people aren't playing the games; they're just seeing an image and making a, a variety of assumptions. Uh, it is uh, interesting, though. I did another accidental. Uh, provocation that went into Ultima 3 is you may remember the magic books. And one of the things I started doing in the Ultimas early on that now other games do is I tried to make the manuals as fictional as possible. Instead of saying, hey, to cast a certain spell, you know, you use this key on the keyboard and here are the numbers and parameters associated with it. I actually tried to write the manuals as if this was real. So if you if it's a magic book, 
you don't say it's a computer game. You just write it as if, yeah, it's a magic book. And if you want to resurrect somebody, you know, you, you, you bring together these ingredients and you boil them in a pot and you pour them down his throat and, uh, you know, chant these words and ta-da, your friend will be back to life. And uh, so I, I tried to write it as realistically, quote unquote, as possible. And of course, I don't believe that magic really exists. But I had, but I went to, in order to do research for what a magic book might look like. I bought tons of books from people who claimed they could do real magic. And as I went through those books, by the way, and if you go buy some books about magic, you will find that they are incoherent. <laughs> you know, there's there's really no pattern to it. There's no, uh, you know, there, there's it's very hard to pull uh, structure out of it in a way that would you, you can write a fictional magic book a lot more interesting and feeling like realistic compared to the quote real ones. And uh, but, but when I but when I looked through those real ones, I pulled out certain kinds of images or icons, sigils and things just because they look cool. So sometimes those people were good artists and would draw interesting shapes and things. So I'd actually pull from, quote, real, unquote, sources, some symbols that were used in some of those early books. And I did get uh, messages. Uh, the one I'm remembering right now is actually from a, a Jewish rabbi who noted that I sealed the last few pages of the book. They, they literally had a tag over them. They had to tear open to get to the most powerful spells. <laughs> and the cover of that sealed section uh, had some writing on it, some, some like the some names written in weird font. Uh, and this rabbi called us up and said, hey, by the way, you really shouldn't be printing those symbols in a book because those are the those symbols are the 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 word of God, Jehovah, you know, written in uh, you know, I can't remember what language it was, uh, but it's a word you're really not supposed. And according to Jewish faith, you're not supposed to write down. And uh, and so he was, uh, uh, you know, at least bringing that to our attention. And in our case, it was completely accidental. I was just using a funky looking symbol. Hmm. Well, I've, I've always thought it was so interesting that I, I believe that you're not very religious at all, and the Ultimate Games are very um, sort of uh, clear-sighted about the, some of the downsides of religion, and yet spirituality is one of the eight virtues. Yes. Yeah, no, in fact, uh, uh, you're correct on all fronts. I, uh, I consider myself actually a very spiritual person, but, I, but, yeah, but it's with a unique definition of the word spiritual. Um, what, what, I, what I use, and I try to describe this in Ultima, what I use for the concept of spirituality is not religious spirituality, is not, uh, a, has nothing to do with a God, has nothing to do with a soul. Uh, it really has to do with the uh, introspection about your place and purpose in life. And, uh, but, but again, not in a uh, you know, beyond human uh, understanding way, but rather in a uh, you know, the, the, the sense of caring that I do care about, uh, the tracks I leave with my life on this earth. And, uh, I consider that spirituality. Um, and so it is, a, I know a unique definition of the word mm -hmm. that's not commonplace, but that is, uh, uh, I do consider myself a very positively spiritual person, uh, but with that very specific definition. Mm -hmm. All right, cool. And so your, your new project is called Shroud of the Avatar. Uh, could you just tell us how is this similar to the Ultima series and how is it different? Yeah, so what's interesting is, um, uh, you know, I've been making role-playing games, obviously, for a long time, 40 years. And uh, as we reflect back on the Ultima series, I think there were some really great things that other games and, and even games I've worked on have not continued. Uh, so part of Shroud of the Avatar is hearkening back to the past. Um, 
where Ultima 4, Ultima 7, and Ultima Online are the biggest touchstones, where, you know, creating a rich, detailed, you know, Ultima 7, I think, is the best Ultima from uh, the detail of the simulation of everything from, you know, you, you, you touch a sign or a lamp and it swings in the wind, uh, you, uh, you know, uh, uh, every object in the game can be picked up, taken, interacted with, used, filled, or, un, you know, fill a base with, or fill a vial with uh, fluids or poured out on the ground. You know, the, the detail of the simulation is very good. Ultima 4 from the virtues and making sure that, uh, you know, the game really is not only espousing, but judging you uh, on the ethical behavior you perform within the game. Uh, and then uh, uh, Ultima Online in the sense of a very deeply simulated multiplayer uh, environment where the roles that people can play are very diverse from just a combatant you know, collecting treasure through the crafters who create the tools and of the trade of all the, the adventurers are out uh, in the wilderness and uh, and all the other walks of life uh, that are not only simulated but are deeply interconnected to where to be successful you really rely on other players within the game. So that's sort of the foundation is kind of a hearkening back to the past. But we're also trying to fix some problems that role-playing games we think have come up with and take these a good strong step into the future where I think a lot of role-playing games have become fairly brain-dead operations. And what I mean by that is that you know, you're dropped into a virtual world, uh, you uh, see an exclamation over the person's head you really need to talk to, so you know i got to go talk to him. When you talk to that character, you don't really pay attention to what they say, you just kind of click on the menu of things they have to say and avoid clicking on the ones that would make that person angry. At that point, anything you needed will be into your quest log, uh, you, your quest log uh, will then put an arrow on the map to drive you through the world to the place you needed to be go for that quest, where it's usually farm the monsters for level, you know, level one quest for level one monsters. As soon as you do that one repeatedly enough, you become level two and repeat the whole behavior. Um, and so th the automation to, of these games makes you, the player, really not need to pay much attention to the whole game experience. You're no longer exploring. You're no longer actually problem solving. You're no longer thinking about, you know, why or how should I interact in a particular way in this particular situation? And so we decided to uh, work very hard to try to bring what we think of as role playing back to role playing. Uh, and uh, I think we've done a good job with uh, new kinds of conversation systems, new kinds of ways to track the knowledge that you have acquired during your adventuring. Uh, and hopefully going to take a, you know, a bold step into a, a new future for role-playing games. Mm -hmm. And I mean, one of the things you mentioned is that the, one of the selling points of the Ultima series is these rich stories and uh, backgrounds of the world and stuff. Uh, could you talk about what, what sort of a story are you putting together for Shroud of the Avatar? Absolutely. You know, in fact, um, you know, as I reflect on the stories in Ultimas, I'm, I'm very proud of, of the high concept of many of those stories. But my critique of my own work is that, you know, while I think I understand the high concept I'm trying to deal with, the, the main social issues I want to wrestle with in this story, um, you know, I'm not and was not raised a, a, as a professional storyteller. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I would like to argue that, uh, uh, that I am, uh, you know, one of the leading storytellers in interactive games. Yet, I still, as I look at, at book authors in general, and a few in specific, I, I don't see the prose that I write or the structure I put to a story to be nearly as, as high quality as some of them. And so one of the things I did here with Shroud of the Avatar is, day one, 
we sat down, I started talking with my dear friend, Tracy Hickman, who I've admired uh, uh, for 30 plus years. Uh, and we commonly would share stories and have worked together on some small projects, but never on a large project before. And so I reached out to Tracy and said, hey, Tracy, could you, would you uh, be interested and willing to work with us here to craft the story for Shroud of the Avatar? And uh, he very enthusiastically said yes. And we put that in as one of our Kickstarter goals when we got the project going to uh, have him uh, not only help us internally with the story for Shroud of the Avatar, but also to write a book of the backstory that we've been working on together uh, as well called Blade of the Avatar. But the uh, largely the story in this case, so we're doing Shroud of the Avatar as five episodes. Uh, this first episode is called Forsaken Virtues. And in this first episode, uh, you, the player, return to the lands of Lord British where... Uh, you know, it's, it's been some time since you've uh, played together in a world, so to speak, with Lord British, which it has. Uh, and when you return to this world, you find that while Lord British still espouses the virtues, you know, a great deal is, of time has passed and, uh, uh, and the world has sort of moved on and thinks of them as uh, quaint, but a bit antiquated uh, and is now back onto the practical business of, of rebuilding the world uh, in which you have now returned. Uh, and the game now, in this case, it's still about virtue, but it allows you to explore virtue in sort of what, I'll, what you could call your own way. And there is a new force that we call the Oracle, this new advisor that uh, you'll find uh, re regularly reentering the story. And the Oracle is a lot, uh, I would describe this character as a lot like Aleister Crowley, if you remember Aleister Crowley, who, uh, you know, he was a, a, a witch, he believed, and uh, he believed that, you know, you should become the best you you could be, no matter what that you was. And the Oracle is a force of this kind. And so the Oracle will sit and analyze your behavior and ask you about the intentions of your behavior and comment on whether your intentions and your behavior appear to be in line as far as the oracle can, de can determine by mechanically observing your behaviors in the gameplay. And so at the end of, of this first episode, the uh, Forsaken Virtues episode, um, you know, players will emerge with a variety of outcomes. Uh, you know, if you think of most storylines in most games, you, know, you, you either win or you don't. And whatever that uh, has been scripted by the uh, creators, uh, we're trying to create some. This, this first episode is really where you effectively determine your own destiny by your actions in the game. Mm -hmm. I mean, one thing I, I've read uh, Blade of the Avatar, the sections that have been released so far, and one thing that really strikes me is that it, it seems really interesting to me on a meta level that in the game world you have the fall and a lot of the old world has been swept away and is now forgotten and it seems like that parallels you know the history of the ultimate games and the fall with electronic arts and now coming out of that and rebuilding this new world exactly yeah and in fact of course uh, you're picking up on a rhythm which is not accidental that's <laughs> uh you know uh we obviously could not reference uh any intellectual property of the past and we sort of we so we had to sweep it away and interestingly, um, you know, if you remember Ultima 9, the end of Ultima 9 actually ends with the destruction of, effectively, the destruction of Britannia. So sort of by good fortune, I mean, it wasn't even accidental. 
it, when uh, you know a little bit of you know scuttlebutt about the final days of you know my relationship with uh, EA uh, is you know when we when we did Ultima Online, it was the best selling game, best selling PC game in Origin and EA history. Uh, so obviously that was a big hit. However, EA was also not hot on role-playing games in general, especially not medieval-styled role-playing games. There had been a lot of other failures. There weren't many fantasy movies coming out. The the new Lord of the Rings movies had yet to be envisioned. Uh, The most popular movies were The Matrix and things of this nature. And the pressure was on to, they were trying to get everybody to quit making, you know, people running, men running around in tights because they didn't think people wanted it anymore. And they really hoped that we'd go out and make, you know, Matrix-type games. And at least for me, it was obvious that Ultimate Nine was going to be the end. Uh, it was the it was the end of the trilogy of trilogies. I'd been working on it at that point for about twenty five years. Uh, it was obvious that I had lost the support and interest of my publisher, uh, and so I said, "Okay, this is this is really the end." And so I set that story up to sort of be, you know, to to, to wipe the slate clean in in some way. Uh, and I did, and then I walked away. Then with the, the combination of they pushed me out of the company, and I walked away from medieval fantasy for a while. But in the ten years that have transpired since, I, I found it very shocking that well, first of all, fantasy, of course, was not dead. I never, I knew it never was. Uh, it was just uh, the the company that didn't feel like uh, medieval fantasy was relevant. Uh, it's continued, obviously, to be enormously popular. But uh, but no one has really kind of followed in the Ultima mold. No one has followed in the mold of virtues. No one has really followed in the mold of these deep sandbox uh, games where everything in them is interactive. No one has really taken the uh, the uh, RPG roles the, that you can play as a character and try to make them as so deeply interdependent on each other as uh, we did even with Ultima Online. And so, that, so over the years, as I kind of gained some distance from Ultima, uh, began to long myself to play or participate in the creation of another Ultima, I uh, began to get the pressure from the community to come back and go do that uh, in, instead of sci-fi or whatever else we might do next. Uh, and so this was just the right time. And so, yes, when you to come back full circle to your, your statement about Blade of the Avatar, yeah, Blade of the Avatar is meant to be that bridge. It's meant to be, look, we're not going to reference anything about the past. The past really was is gone. But what we're going to do is we're going to start with, you know, the old world is gone. And how do we build the new history, the new uh, reality uh, going forward? And the one piece of continuity that we will bring back and that we do own is Lord British. And so uh, Lord British and uh, the virtues which I personally espouse, uh, you know, will, uh, uh, will continue uh, to, into the new world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, speaking of Lord British, I, I heard you say that when they when you were working on Ultima 7, that they wanted to give Lord British a wife and kid. And you say, no, you can't do that because I'm Lord British and I don't have a wife and kid. But now yeah. you do have a wife and kid. So does That's that mean right. that now Lord British will have a, uh, a wife and kid? A very interesting speculation, but I can't tell the answer to that because it involves some of the plot of uh, Forsaken Virtues. So it is a reasonable suspicion, <laughs> but exactly the way that that will play out, uh, you'll have to find in game. Oh, interesting. All right. Uh, I mean, one feature of this game I'm really looking forward to is that you're bringing back the text parser, because I grew up playing Ultima games and Sierra Adventure games where you had to actually type in words, and uh, I'm looking forward to that making a comeback. Yeah, me too. You know, in fact, um, uh, the uh, uh, it's interesting that, the I don't know if you had a chance to actually have a good conversation with some of the characters in the game yet, but um, uh, Scott Jennings, who's the, our main programmer on this facet of game, significantly exceeded 
my hopes and expectations in a way that makes me very happy. You know, I would have been frankly content with something very much like the literally the old school Ultima, you know, just parse out a keyword one at a time and respond to one thing at a time. Uh, what he made instead, he said, look, there's, if we're going to put in a parser at all, we might as well put in something, you know, a little bit more state of the art. And while it's still looking for keywords in what you say, it can pull out whole sets of keywords and uh, that are presented even in complex sentences. So if you walk up to an NPC and say, hello, I'm Richard Garriott. Uh, your establishment here looks like a pub. If that's true, you know, what kinds of beer do you have for sale? I'd like to buy one. And it will go and it says, oh, hello, Richard Garriott. And since I said my real name, he will now permanently remember my real name. And I'll say, why, yes, this is a pub. This is Fire Lotus's Tavern. And yes, we sell beer. You know, we have 24 different types on tap. You know, what would you like? And so it actually goes through and it, it, it responds to each of the keywords that it can pull out of separate sentences along the way all in one fell swoop. Um, in addition, if you say something that the character doesn't see anything in there it can parse, it records it. And so that sends a, a mail, uh, you know, every day Scott and his team uh, get a sweep of what things that people have said to the NPCs that the NPCs didn't understand. And if they look at those and it looks like something that, oh, you know, that's actually reasonable, that character probably should know about that, then they add it. And so our characters are getting smarter and smarter and smarter as time goes on within the game. All right. So back in episode 91 of this show, we interviewed Felicia Day who mentioned yeah. that she's a huge Ultima fan, and she actually has some of her Ultima fan poetry online. I was just wondering yeah. if you had seen any of that stuff. Oh, yes, I have. And in fact, uh, uh, some of her fan poetry is probably the first way I became uh, you know, uh, a, a big fan of, of hers. When I, when, I mean, it, it's the first time she really so strongly came on my radar, of course, it would make sense that you know, people would forward that to me and, and bring it to my attention. But the more I, you know, in reverse, the, the more I have seen and heard about Felicia and watched her uh, YouTube channels and things of this nature, the more, frankly, the more of a Felicia Dave fan I have become <laughs> also. Uh, you know, I find uh, Felicia's success to be a harbinger of the future of uh, television style media. And here's what I, here's, here's my case. Um, you know, when I go to places like Dragon Con, you know, I've been going to conventions forever. And uh, it's interesting to see uh, who shows up as a fan to different kinds of presentations at these conventions. And so, so for example, uh, you know, an artist, there's lots of, of artists who show up at conventions to show off their art and maybe sell a little bit of it. And they get a, you know, a line of people around their, their little booth. You then get up to uh, some book authors and some book authors might have uh, you know, a few more people that show up uh, at their talks or their booths and queue up to you know, meet them or get a picture or an autograph or whatever it might be. Then you have uh, computer game developers like myself, you know, who might command, uh, you know, uh, a similar or sometimes a little more people uh, based on, you know, the popularity of their, their titles. Then you move up to a whole other class, which you get to for like television and movie stars. TV and movie stars command a much bigger audience in the big rooms uh, for the fans that show up for television and movie stars. And now there's even bigger. Now there's people like Felicia Day. And uh, for example, at this last Dragon Con I was at, that she was at, they, for her talk, they had to, to book the big ballroom in an entire other hotel that had a bigger ballroom than any of the main Dragon Con hotel rooms so they could fit the tens of thousands of people in who wanted to see her and her team uh, get up and, and just uh, talk about uh, their latest machinations on life. 
And to me, I look at that and go, that is so much more powerful. The, the, the podium that she now has uh, reaching the younger, fast growing demographic uh, of an audience if, if if people in you know normal broadcast television aren't paying attention to this, they're going to yet again lose out. And I and another good case study is uh, the Rooster Teeth folks back in Austin, Texas, who uh, who for their you know red versus blue and other shows they do, they often even have a bigger audience than Felicia. And in Austin, they just bought the entire uh, television studios of what used to be a big studio of I can't remember if it was. NBC, CBS, or ABC, or who it was, but you know, another a big production studio in Austin, Texas, you know, went out of business for traditional media and was bought up by Rooster Teeth, which is now expanding into it. And so, I think that uh, you know, things like you're doing these the, these uh, podcasts and the with the video, the, the on demand with on demand, whether it's radio or video, and video whether it's television or movies is inconsequential to me. This on demand nature. I'm seeing the consumer base shift to it. Uh, I'm seeing marketing dollars shift to it. Uh, and, uh, uh, and I think uh, traditional media needs to pay attention or they'll miss it. Mm-hmm. I also wanted to ask you about the Space Bards uh, Return of War British music video, which yeah. I, I absolutely love. I must have watched that thing a hundred times. Yeah, uh, it's phenomenal. <laughs> just what was your initial, just how did that come about and what was your reaction oh, to that? Well, you know, we were doing this during the Kickstarter. One of the things we realized during the Kickstarter, you know, we, if we did a Kickstarter again, we'd do it a considerably better, I think. I mean, I'm not, I'm not complaining about how, how we did, but, but it was an interesting learning experience. And one of the things we learned as we were going through it is we really need to be interactive with the community you know, more and more. And, uh, and one of the ways that we uh, did that uh, is we began to run contests. And we were, we were close to the end. We were within a week of the end of the Kickstarter. And we decided to run on one weekend a three-day, so 72-hour contest that said, hey, whoever can produce the best video kind of that we can kind of use as advertising for Shroud of the Avatar, you know, we'll give you, you know, something, you know, some cool upgrades or whatever it might be. And, and then we began to watch over the next 72 hours as people turn things in. And of course, the, the first 24 hours, the things we got in were, you know, they were fun and they were interesting and it was cool that people took time out of their lives to do it. But they wouldn't be things that we could release and actually sell people on, you know, who we were and what we were doing here. Uh, but by the time we got to the end of day two, uh, we began to get things that were really good. In fact, there's a woman who was our leading contender up until the space bar, a woman named uh, Ember Isolte. And uh, Ember's uh, piece, kind of a, a traditional medieval-styled piece, great music, great lyrics, very, very well sung, uh, we thought was going to be the winner. We, uh, As we all went through it, it hers was so much better than uh, the other folks through the entirety of day two that it was she was the assumptive winner. And then, you know, within oh, four hours or so of the close of day three, the Space Bards gave us their return of Lord British. And we were stunned. <laughs> it was so good. Uh, you know, it, uh, uh, we, we, we actually started feeling bad because we, we liked Ember's piece so much, so nice. It, it is, it's great. And Ember's still a great member of our community. We love her to death, think her work is phenomenal. But for this particular contest, for this particular need, for what we were trying to do to market the game uh, and just to have, have fun ourselves uh, with it and around it, uh, Space Bards nailed it. And 
Uh, and so uh, we have been, uh, uh, you know, not only so thankful to the Space Bards, we've become big Space Bards fans. We all contributed to their Kickstarter to do uh, uh, music themselves. You know, they've gone on to do music at a at a uh, Blizzard Con and other things too. Uh, uh, you know, so they're 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 making a good run of it as a as a band independently, uh, and still are producing music for us in game that is just phenomenal. Wow. Okay, I saw in a video that you recently bought a brownstone in New York City. And That's true. Uh, I live in New York. I was just curious what brings you to the city. Uh, marriage brings me to the city. So uh, I met my wife uh, when uh, she was on vacation, and technically I was working just after my space flight. And uh, uh, I happened to be in the island of St. Bart's, uh, where my company had sent me to give a speech. And uh, she happened to be in the same island, uh, but did not come to the speech uh, there over Christmas break. And uh, but over about a 24 hour period, we ran into each other, uh, you know, one night uh, just after dinner was our first kind of just brief encounter. Then we have to go to the same restaurant for breakfast. Then we are in the same general place for lunch. Then the next afternoon we were uh, uh, on the same small plane off the island. Uh, and so four times in a row in, you know, 24 to 48 hours. And, uh, uh, you know, that kind of kicked off uh, at least a conversation, uh, which uh, even though I went back to Texas and she went back here to New York, uh, the interest was high enough. We kept uh, communications up and uh, and eventually led to uh, a couple of years ago us uh, getting married. Ah, cool. And I saw that you keep in touch with the um, office in Austin with a telepresence robot. That's exactly right. In fact, we have two there now, and I have a third now on order just because it's essential. In fact, before this call, um, that's that's the way, you know, when, when I wake up in the morning, if I'm, at, so I split my time about 50-50 Austin, New York. But uh, when I'm here in New York, when I get up in the morning, I sit down at this desk that I'm talking to you from right now. I power on my telepresent robot in Austin, and I wander the halls and go to meetings and participate just as if I was there. Uh, I'm, I'm generally, you know, unless I'm on a call like this, I am full-time in my office and wandering the halls as normal just through a telepresent robot <laughs> um and then also your mom was it your mom came to your wedding via a telepresence robot yeah in fact that's what we bought the robot for originally is that when my wife and i decided to get married she wanted to get married she's french and she wanted to get married in france where she has uh, an enormously large extended family uh, my extended family is only you know half a dozen people so it was a lot easier for us to travel uh, except for my mother, who's uh, over 80 years old and was not really feeling too excited about international travel. Uh, and I said, well, I know of new technologies coming online to fix that. In fact, I, when we decided to get married, I put in an order for this robot that I knew wouldn't be delivered until a month or so before the wedding. Uh, and so we have one of the very first ever telepresent uh, uh, machines ever made uh, was used out at our wedding. And in fact, we got, we got married at this old castle. And uh, uh, this old castle had no internet. And so we actually got a hold of the company Orange, you know, which is one of the biggest phone companies in uh, Europe. And we told them, we expressed them what we were trying to do. And they said, look, if you'll let us market that we helped you guys pull this off, we will provide you internet uh, for this day, uh, which they did. So they actually ran internet to the castle and put wireless out in the, you know, 100 acres of gardens out behind it so that my mother could uh, roam freely uh, both through the wedding itself and in the after party. So one of my, uh, some of our favorite pictures are of people dancing with her on hmm. the dance floor uh, while, uh, uh, you know, uh, during and after the wedding. Hmm. I guess for people who 
who don't know, what does this robot actually look like? It's sort of a segue, right? Kind of. It's like, sort of like, yeah. So the, almost all of those, we have three different models now. So, but they generally have the same form factor, which is a, a, a small base uh, underneath it. That's a, you know, about the size of a toolbox that uh, is a self-balancing mechanism with two wheels, a telescoping uh, pole that goes up the center. Uh, and then on top is uh, the communications head. So, you know, you have a, a display, a monitor, so the other people can see you, and microphones uh, where you can pick up what's happening in the other room. And when it's on my screen here, you just use, you know, your arrow key and mouse to drive it around. Uh, so it's, uh, other than the fact that you can't open doors for yourself, uh, it, uh, uh, it's, it's a mighty good way to virtually be there. It doesn't have any sort of arm, does it, like to press elevator buttons or anything like it that? It does not. You know, in fact, I keep looking to see when somebody's going to make one, and no one even has that kind of in the queue that I can see yet. Uh, and the reason why, the, the the other problem with elevators is that they tend to cut off wireless connections mm. because they're metal boxes. So we've actually tried to hook uh, like 4G modems onto uh, these devices and drive them around. And you can drive them around outdoors with a 4G modem. Elevators are still a, a, a hard... Uh, uh, journey to go into just because of uh, the complexity of pressing the button <laughs> and, and disconnecting. Yeah. Yeah. All right, cool. So why don't you tell us uh, what's ahead for Shred of the Avatar? Sort of where do you hope the project goes in the next couple of years? Well, so, you know, our sites are still set on the end of this year, which is getting the, uh, the Forsaken Virtues uh, release out, that first whole story and the first whole continent. But as is the case with massively multiplayer-style games, you know, we, we hope and trust that it will live on for many years. And so, uh, uh, you know, with the modest few million dollars that we're building episode one out of, uh, that's to kind of get the sandbox built and the first stories told. But uh, uh, as the game expands, you know, we're going to do things like, um, you know, uh, there you'll see ships in episode one, but the ships are all bound, you know, tied onto the docks. You don't get to sail them around much. Uh, you know, you'll see uh, if, whether it's flying vehicles or the, the implication of future flying vehicles. You'll see, uh, uh, you know, the uh, whole new groups of character classes to be played. Uh, you know, the stories of this first one involve a fairly limited palette of uh, kinds of creatures and circumstances. All those things will be expanded in uh, episodes uh, two, three, four, and five. Uh, to where, you know, if we get through episode five, if we if we're fortunate enough to live through the full arc of five episodes, uh, then, uh, you know, uh, I think uh, we, we will be about as happy as you can be, and uh, then we'll, we'll uh, uh, decide what's next. How many people does it take to sail a ship? I was just curious about that. <laughs> well, well, right now you can't, because uh, they're all tied to the docks, but uh, that'll come in episode two. So we, have, we haven't, honestly, we haven't even begun to design the strategy yet for how easy or difficult it will be uh, to uh, to navigate your vessel across the seas. Mm. All right, cool. So, I mean, if people are interested in Shroud of the Avatar, what uh, websites or things should they be checking out? Absolutely. So, uh, www.shroudoftheavatar.com, pretty easy, uh, is where you can come. And uh, you'll be very excited to have more people join us on this adventure to kind of... Uh, both harken back to an earlier day of, uh, of, of, of series of games like Ultima, as well as kind of take a bold step into the future of trying to create uh, a new type of massively multiplayer game with a new type of way to interact with the uh, characters and quests uh, that we hope will 
be well liked and, and carry us into the future. All right, great. So, oh, unfortunately, we're pretty much out of time here. So I guess we should probably start wrapping this up. But uh, Richard, I just really want to thank you. It's sort of a lifelong dream for me to get to talk to you. So, oh, thank you, David. My pleasure. Absolutely. <laughs> so just thanks for all the Ultima games and uh, really looking forward to Shroud of the Avatar and best of luck with it. Thank you. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Richard Garriott for joining us on the show. And as we mentioned, our panel topic today will be Dungeons & Dragons tie-in novels. And we're joined by two guest geeks. So first up, we've got James L. Sutter, who you may remember from our panel on Dungeons & Dragons back in episode 49. He's the managing editor of Paizo Publishing and a co-creator of the Pathfinder role-playing game. He's also the author of the Pathfinder novel Death's Heretic, which ranked number three on Barnes & Noble's Best Fantasy of 2011. A sequel called The Redemption Engine will be out on April 30th. So, James, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me back. And also joining us today is Wendy N. Wagner. She's the managing slash associate editor of both Lightspeed and Nightmare magazines, and her short fiction appears in magazines such as Beneath Ceaseless Skies and in books such as Armored and The Way of the Wizard. Her first novel, Skinwalkers, is a Pathfinder tie-in due out at the end of March. So, Wendy, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be here, Dave. All right. And so the first thing I want to talk about is just how we all got into Dungeons & Dragons tie-in novels. And I'll start. I talked about this a little bit last time we had James on the show, but I really got into all the Dungeons & Dragons stuff through video games. There was a, the first computer RPG I ever beat, actually, was this game called Fantasy uh, by a company called SSI who later got it a license to make official Dungeons & Dragons games. Mm, and yeah. the first one of those I got was called Heroes of the Lance. It was a Dragonlance tie-in. And that kicked off my interest in all things Dungeons & Dragons. And so I started reading the Dragonlance tie-in novels. The first one I read was this one called Stormblade, which honestly didn't make much of an impression on me. But I sort of went from that one to the, the uh, Margaret Weiss, Tracy Hickman, Dragonlance Chronicles, and I just absolutely loved those. And um, I guess so that's that's the those were the first ones I really got into. Um, so how about uh, Wendy, which uh, how did you get into Dungeons and Dragons novels? Well, I, I remember when I was pretty young, there was a Dungeons and Dragons cartoon. And uh, I just thought it was like the best thing ever. And um, it, well, it, it was. Yes. I'm glad I'm remembering that, right? <laughs> and so when I was at the library and found the Dragonlance books and I saw that magical word, you know, Dungeons and Dragons, I just assumed they would be insanely awesome. And so I read like those first two trilogies that Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman put out. And uh, I think I just loved them. <laughs> and James? Yeah, Um. so... Richard Knack's original Dragon Realm series was one of the first uh, fantasy series that I ever got into. And so they led me to The Legend of Huma, which was one of the early Dragonlance books. And from there, I just read a bajillion Dragonlance novels. <laughs> mm. yeah, and The Legend of Huma is great. I mean, that's one of my favorite of those books. Yeah. But so, Wendy, what are kind of your um, dominant memories of the that first Dragonlance Chronicles series? Uh, you know. For me, there there may as well have only been about like two characters in the book anymore. I I just always loved like little Tasselhoff Burfoot, <laughs> you know, and and I, I I love all kinds of small hobbity kind of people. So I think uh, he may have like left a long term impression on me because I definitely 
you know, I think I'd been read The Hobbit as a kid, um, but I hadn't, you know, I hadn't read any serious fantasy until I read these Dragonlance books. I, I was probably eight or nine when I read them. Must have been about nine or ten, I guess. And so I just, I liked him. He just seemed, you know, cute and funny. And I liked the way that that whole series would, like, be like, okay, we're going to ramp up and have all this exciting action, and then somebody's going to be kind of funny. And <laughs> I, just, I think that's sort of imprinted in my brain, like, perpetually. Like, this is what a book should be like. It should have, like, crazy madcap action, and then somebody should be funny. Mm -hmm. And I guess we should say that those books were adapted straight from a series of role-playing modules. So there was a ton of combat and dungeon crawling kind of stuff in those books because that's what the game, you know, the Dungeons & Dragons game mostly involves. You know, from a professional side, uh, we often talk about sort of the, the Dragonlance effect where they came out with those novels and those modules that were heavily tied together at around the same time. And it was just a beautiful blitz of all of this setting stuff that I think really contributed heavily to Dragonlance becoming so popular. Yeah, I mean, it was very, I mean, just speaking for myself, it was very exciting to discover this whole, you know, there was the video games and the books and the game books. And it was like this endless amount of stuff you could ask your parents to buy for you, you know, <laughs> all, all at once. Uh, but so, James, in terms of the characters in the story, does anything really stick out from those Dragonlance so Chronicles? I'm, I'm going to put the caveat on there right now that I read so many so long ago that they blur a little bit. But isn't that where Raistlin first showed up? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I love and him. see, that was perfection right there, because he was the bad boy character. You know, you had a lot of other guys like, you know, I remember reading about Tannis Half-Elven and being like, okay, yeah, you know, he's he's cool. But like, Raistland was the guy who was sort of good and sort of bad, um, kind of like Han Solo, but with even like a slightly darker twist. And I think that it's those characters that have always called to me most, but I think that really called to uh, you know, folks in general a lot. I mean, I think people like the anti-heroes. Mm -hmm. um, I'll just say the the one thing that really sticks in my mind about the Dragonlance Chronicles is that there's a character named Stern Brightblade who, uh, spoiler warning, dies in book two. And that was one of the first books I read where a major character died, uh, you know, in the middle of the story. And mm. it was totally devastating for me. Uh, <laughs> Somewhere a much younger George Martin is going, wait a second. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> um, but and, and I agree that Raistlin is a is a terrific character. And particularly, I mean, I think the Dragonlance Chronicles is an okay story. Like I said, I think it suffers somewhat from being a straight adaptation of a, a role-playing game. But then they were able to take that character in the Dragonlance uh, Legends uh, trilogy that uh, succeeded it. And I think that's a fantastic story. I mean, I should... Well, like you, I should give the caveat that all these, all my impressions <laughs> of these books are based on twenty-year-old memories. So yeah. I don't know how reliable when we were they twelve, are. they were red. <laughs> <laughs> Raceland in that second series is just like so awesome because at that stage, right, that's when he's like got like the gold skin and the hourglass eyes, and he's like crackling with this evil energy all the time. He's like amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the the story of those books, as as of that trilogy, as I remember it, is that Raistlin wants to he's he's become a powerful enough wizard that he wants to challenge the god, the evil god in this. Okay, so in this world, there's a good god, a neutral god, and an evil god, and he wants to challenge the evil god and kill her and take her place as the evil god of this world. Uh, and in order to do this, he has to somehow open up a portal to her realm, 
and the portal can only be opened. He needs the help of uh, of someone who's pure and good uh, to help open this portal, and so he has to corrupt this uh, priestess named Lady Christania. And uh, and so there's just I don't know there's all sorts of really cool moral complexity to that, and and he actually he's like again spoiler warning, but come on these books are twenty years old, and he <laughs> he's, he succeeds, and then at the end of the story, you know his friends look up into the night sky and they see the constellation of the Dark Queen, uh, Takesis, has been replaced by. This is the constellation of Raistolin, who's now the evil god of the world. And man, it's just, I don't know, it's awesome stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, and actually, you know, it's funny, because uh, you, when you say uh, something like that, I feel like the issue of does the fiction series, uh, you know, how does it impact the setting is actually a big part of what people either love or hate about tie-in novels for RPGs, right? Because, like, you've got, you know, you want, it's tempting with novels to always have things change and have big effects on sort of the grander world stage, um, except that if you do that, you risk invalidating all the game books that people already bought and the campaigns they're already playing in, right? So I like, thought that was the plan, and then they have to buy the new all the new game books. But, yeah, but it makes people really mad. I mean, the <laughs> the fallout after um, like the Forgotten Realms got blown up, um, you know, a lot of fans were really mad about that. Um, and you know it's it's well, James. Not... Why don't you explain a little bit more about what that was? <laughs> well, I mean, I don't want to. That's somebody else's uh, IP, so I don't, I don't want to throw any stones because I totally understand the the desire to reboot everything. But I also think that there's a legitimate fan backlash if you take a setting, get everybody really invested in it, have them playing their games in it, uh, and then have uh, you know say you know never mind, we're going to take all that and put it on the shelf or actively destroy it and then bring in this new setting. Um, well, but but I think what, what we should explain for people who don't follow this stuff is that they released the second edition of Dungeons and Dragons and they had changed all, you know, they changed a lot of the rules completely. And so then they had within the fiction of the Forgotten Realms, they had this period called the Time of Troubles where, you know, they, they ex- there was this gigantic cataclysm and that explains why. Everything well, is that, different. That also isn't the only time that's happened. I mean, it's happened more recently also with you know, Forgotten Realms and with other settings. Um, and I think it's always a, uh, a very dangerous proposition for a company. That's, uh, that's one of the reasons why. So my day job is managing the novels for uh, Paizo, for the Pathfinder role-playing game. And from the beginning, our, uh, one of our ethoses was always that we're not going to let the novels ruin the world or change the world too much um, because you're not the only people invested in that. Like role-playing games are this weird sort of uh, intersection between fiction, which is a very, you know, as the author, you have total control and this wider community based thing. And so it's really important to not invalidate everything that's come before because there are a lot more people than just, you know, an author uh, who feel like they have investment and control of the setting. Mm-hmm. See, so, Wendy, uh, we met, we're talking about these Forgotten Realms setting. Did you ever read uh, the Forgotten Realms stuff? Oh, I did. I uh, I really liked Drip Stewart and, and his, uh, I think I read probably the first two trilogies, or maybe just the, the first one for sure. And then I think I started reading uh, the, the later books where he's like not underground. But I just, I really liked that first series of Spirit 
in like the drow underground underground realm and you're exploring all these weird tunnels and there's all this like dark stuff and and drips is a little bit like Raceland, you know he's a little bit of this dark dude who's like you know opposed to everything in his civilization weight of the world is on his shoulders and i always really liked him yeah absolutely uh homelands by ari salvatore uh, which is the first of the Dark Elf trilogy is is absolutely one of my favorites of these books. Uh, and okay. it's, it's about a, a society of, you know, the Dark Elves are an evil race of elves who live underground. And Dritzt is a, a a rare Dark Elf who's born with a conscience and the problems he has. Actually, we interviewed Ari Salvatore on this show a while back, uh, episode 49, I guess, because it's when James was on. So you should definitely check that out. He told some awesome stories about that. That'd be great. <laughs> He's, he is a fascinating dude to talk to. Like just his perspective on how the uh how the whole dark elf thing uh you know drist came to be um you know it was a lot of these split second decisions that ended up you know defining his whole writing career <laughs> um but uh you know so i'm curious what uh you guys's favorite of the older campaign settings were we've you know talked about two of them um what what was the what was the best to you uh wendy you know, I, I probably—it's hard to say. I mean, I, I never played Dungeons and Dragons, so I only know D and D from uh, from the books. And so, uh, thinking back, I'm gonna have to say Forgotten Realms, just because I do tend to really appreciate dark fiction so much, and I think that there is a lot of darkness in at least those first books. I haven't read any further in the Forgotten Realms than that, but. I'd say the Forgotten Realms. Actually, uh, I'm I'm gonna say Dark Sun, but uh, right before I get to that, I just want to mention. Uh, apparently, um, oh wait, who's the guy who invented Forgotten Realms? Was it Ed Greenwood? Ed Greenwood. Yeah. So uh, I was just reading the uh, Wikipedia entry, and apparently, he claims that his Forgotten Realms was a lot darker than how it eventually got published as. Uh, so that's one thing that's interesting. But I also wanted that's to mention. Surprising. <laughs> I also wanted <laughs> yeah. to mention this thing. It says. Uh, uh, Greenwood noted that TSR, that's the company that used to publish Dungeons and Dragons, altered his original conception of the realms being a place that we could travel to from our world, quote, concerns over possible lawsuits of kids getting hurt while trying to find a gate led TSR to de-emphasize <laughs> this meaning. Wow. That's, yeah. Wow. So wait, why do you say that's not surprising? Is Ed Greenwood notably uh, oh, I mean, morose or something? No, no, he's not. Um, Ed's a great guy. He's a, a friend of mine. Um, he's done some work for Pathfinder too. But uh, he's just uh, he likes to push the envelope. Um, not in terms of gore usually, but I mean, he's kind of a a raunchy dude. But in this gleeful sort of way, he's basically like um, filthy Santa Claus. And if you ever meet him <laughs> at, at a convention, um, he's very much got that like. Twinkle in his eye will say, you never know what he'll say because he'll say anything to get a rise. Um, but at the same time, he's this wonderfully generous, lovable dude. Um, <laughs> I've asked him before, it's like, Ed, how do you do this? Because anybody else who like said and did what you do would probably be in jail by now. But <laughs> instead, everybody just is like, oh, Ed, like, <laughs> um, yeah, he is, he is a riot. Huh. Well, I mean, speaking of uh, filthy Santa Claus, uh, <laughs> that just makes me think that the art, the cover art and so on for all these Dungeons and Dragons books was often incredibly sexualized uh, <laughs> yeah. with, uh, you know, yeah. babes, uh, babes and what do you call it? Uh, chainmail bikini chainmail kind of bikinis. stuff. Right. 
Um, like Wendy, when you were reading these as a girl, like did that like what was your impression of all this really sexual imagery on the art? Well, I, I mean, you're talking about the late '80s and early '90s, and and yeah. the vast majority of fantasy and science fiction covers just look like that. I, I don't. I mean, like you go into the video store and you've got like Death Stalker, and it's like all naked chicks and bikinis, <laughs> and like you know, there's more fabric in their boots than there is in their <laughs> outfit. Like, I, I just thought that's what books were like, really. I think. <laughs> I think it really the '80s sort of represented. Um, I don't know if the apex, but kind of the end of that philosophy regarding book covers being the most common. I mean, it's still, it's still around, but I guess, I guess it represented a turning point because, you know, that, that philosophy had been around since the days of the old pulp magazines in the, you know, thirties and forties and whatnot. Um, where the idea was that these were stories for boys, quote unquote, and you were really targeting that young teenage demographic who also incidentally had zero access to any sort of scantily clad women imagery. And so it really uh, benefited you to have that extra sex appeal. But I think that honestly, um, with the rise of the internet and the fact that your book cover can never compete with the untold millions of pornographic images that your reader can pull up on his smartphone in class if he feels like it, um, I, I really think, I mean, it's, it's true. Like every 12 year old boy lives like a Roman emperor these days. It's like, <laughs> if he wants naked pictures, the, the sky is the limit. And so I think that, I mean, my personal opinion is that now, uh, doing that chainmail bikini, like cheesecake cover is really a detriment to your line. Um, because I think that it doesn't have the same appeal for that market that was its original target. And it also doesn't have, I mean, it drives away both, you know, uh, you know, honestly, most women who are going to be like, what? Seriously? Um, and, you know, just sort of feminists of all, uh, genders and sex. Um, but also it's going to drive away all the grownups who are like, you know, I really don't want to be seen reading this on the bus. You know, I, and obviously, you know, some grownups are perfectly happy to read that on the bus, but I think that really the, uh, the day of that being a boon for your book is over. Mm -hmm. I gotta say, I am super happy with my cover from Pathfinder. <laughs> like the main character, you know, like you can see like her neck, her face and her hands, everything else, you know, she looks like she's out in the snow. She's dressed in like heavy duty gear and you know, it's great. She's fully clad. And all you really tell about her is that she's like a giant weapon slinging troublemaker. <laughs> Turns out armor needs to cover the skin to be useful. <laughs> well, it, it's funny you mention that because I mean, one of my favorite of the Dungeons and Dragons books is Azure Bonds by um, Jeff Grubb and Kate Novak, and the it, it has one of the most uh, uh, gratuitous chainmail bikini kind of covers you've ever seen, and it, it's so it's so uh, notable. This armor is so notably. Uh, impractical that they actually have to address it in the book uh, and they explain that there's an invisible magical shield protecting her breast uh, so so that when enemies try to stab her there their weapons just bounce off and you know what's sad is I'm looking at that cover right now and it's actually not even that bad compared to a lot of the other terrible like at, at least she's wearing pants of a sort <laughs> you know <laughs> like 
yeah, it's it's crazy. All right, cool. But getting back to our favorite campaign settings, uh, I said, you know, my one, I think my favorite was the Dark Sun uh, campaign setting, which is basically it's like a fantasy Mad Max. It's like a post-apocalyptic epic fantasy where out-of-control magic has destroyed the ecology of this world and it's all devolved into gladiator combat and, uh, you know, bandits and stuff like that. Sounds awesome. Yeah, I think the uh, the more extreme ones, like you say, like Dark Sun, um, were always the ones that appealed to me, even though I didn't have access to uh, a lot of information about them as a kid. Um, I always thought that Dark Sun was really interesting, but uh, hands down, my favorite was always Planescape, just because it had the most the most weirdness, right? You know, like what I look for in any setting is how much variety is there to your monsters, to your landscapes, and Planescape was all about infinite variety, uh, and I always found that fascinating. I mean, to be perfectly honest, like both of the novels that I've written 20 years ago would have been Planescape novels, because I, I love that, uh, that idea, the, all the different sort of realms of the afterlife or planes or whatever you want to call them kind of coming together uh, is just fascinating to me. Uh, I mean, are there any particular Planescape novels that stick out in your mind? You know, the great irony of this is that I never actually uh, managed to run across a Planescape novel. Honestly, it was one of those things where, like, which which of these books I read as a kid was often determined by either what what setting my group was playing in or just who had the books that they could loan me. You know, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, do any books stick out in your mind as being particularly your least favorites of the Dungeons & Dragons books? I mean, so I'm going to, I'm just going to throw out there that, uh, my, my personal policy, especially because I work in the industry, but just in general is to sort of never spit on anybody's art because I know how much goes into it. But I will say that, um, you know, I read probably 40, uh, RPG tie-in novels, uh, as a kid of which before this interview, I could remember the titles of like five. (laughs) <laughs> uh, so I think that some of those clearly were uh, were forgettable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it seemed, it certainly seemed to me. I mean, I actually kind of got turned off on reading epic fantasy for a long time because I read, you know, like you, thirty or so uh, Dragonlance type novels, and I, I really felt like as they went on that quality control was, uh, you know, uh, lacking a little bit, uh, and particularly um, the thing that really got to me is there was a series where they they were kind of prequels and they had the characters having bigger adventures when they were young than they than they had later on and you never heard of any of the stuff before and it just completely undermines the believability of the whole setting you know i actually feel like i kind of went uh it's kind of went 360 degrees because like i read a ton of rpg tie-in stuff when i was a kid um and then I got this idea that, like, oh, you know, I thought of it in my mind as corporate fantasy, you know, stuff with a logo on the cover. I started to see how it was a commodity and a product, and I was like, well, this can't be good art, right? Because they're just shoving out as many as they can. Um, and, like, why would you bother with quality control if you don't need it to sell it? Um, but I've, and, like, certainly that happens. But now I feel like I've sort of come around to the other side and realized that, like, actually, you know, while it is all about quality control, there's nothing about RPG tie-in fiction that says that it can't be good fiction. Like, it's often good authors, you know, authors whose, you know, original stuff you'd like, why would you not like their 
their tie-in stuff. Um, and some authors are better doing tie-in than doing original stuff. If your thing is characters and plot and not world building, then coming into a world where you can just pick and choose the best elements is a huge boon, actually. So I think uh, I, I had a definite sort of post-teenage backlash against the whole idea. And now I've come back to thinking uh, there's really not a big difference uh, as long as the editors are doing their job. Yeah, I've, I've been kind of in the same boat. You know, I read all those Dragonlance and, and Dritz books when I was probably definitely all under the age of 14. I didn't really read anything, uh, any other tie-ins for a long time, partially because, you know, I've always been the kind of person that gets their books at the libraries and I pretty much tapped out everything my library had. And then, uh, I don't know, probably about five years ago, I kind of turned around and I've really, the tie-in fiction I've been reading, I've really enjoyed. Not just, I don't know that, I, I don't think I've read anything that's tied into um, the Dungeons and Dragons, but I do read the Pathfinder books even before I started, you know, getting into the game and meeting James. And I, I really enjoy them. Well, yeah, I really wonder about, I've never written any tie-in stuff, and I really wonder what the advantages and disadvantages are to it. I mean, it seems to me that the, the disadvantage, you have some of the same disadvantages as a long-running series where more and more stuff gets locked in and it, and it makes it harder to say like, oh, well, this character went to this city and then came here because like, no, crap, I already drew the map and like all my readers know that he couldn't make the journey in that time and I can't change it now. There's that kind of stuff. But on the other hand, you don't have to make up freaking everything. I mean, uh, I've heard George R. R. Martin talk about this where when you're writing epic fantasy, you know, you get to a certain point where you're like, okay, they come to a mountain. It's like, God damn it. What are these mountains called? Um, <laughs> you have to make something up and, you know, you don't have this whole uh, world to draw on. Yeah, I mean, it's it's both um, – it is both Manacles and uh, an incredible support team, right? You know, you don't get to just say, oh, well, he can, he can just do that because magic. Like, you know, if there's a magic system in place – you need to stay within the bounds of that magic system, or your readers will know and they'll call you on it. You know, it'll knock them out of their suspension of disbelief. Um, but at the same time, I mean, how many authors get to have essentially a huge support team doing their world building for them, and you can just sort of focus on the elements that you like and ignore the ones that you don't, and suddenly here's all that work that uh, not only would you have had to do, but also... I think that, uh, you know, most worlds benefit from having multiple imaginations working at the same time. Um, you know, I, I, one of the things I love about my job is getting to play with all of these things that, uh, my coworkers have created. Um, where it's like, you know, I, uh, I'm fascinated by hell. So my coworker Wes is like the hell guy and I love seeing what he comes up with and then I can steal it and put it in my own books and, you know, everybody, that's okay. You know, it's one of the few times where creative plagiarism is encouraged rather than discouraged. It's a little bit like uh, working within, like, a, like if you write poetry, there are forms, right? So, like, you have to write a haiku, and there are very strict rules about writing haiku. But somehow following those rules can sort of break you out of old kind of writing ruts and give you a whole new dimension of looking at character and looking at story and how it all comes together. I think it's pretty dang fun. Uh, well, I mean, James, as an industry professional, can you give any, uh, do you have any idea how these Dungeons and Dragons books came about in the first place? Like whose idea was it and who, how did they, who are the authors? Were they people who worked for TSR or did they recruit authors or? I mean, so I think that often, um, 
often it was people who worked for TSR. And I'm not I'm not a super scholar on the very old um stuff, but my understanding is that uh a lot of that stuff it was originally, you know, people in house. Um I believe that actually the uh and I may get this wrong, I'm forgetting the name of the guy who did the uh the Moonshay books. Um, uh Douglas Niles? Yeah, yeah, the very early Forgotten Realms. Um the way I hear it, they decided they wanted fiction and talked to him and actually had he already had uh, a novel or more that he'd been writing sort of independently and he kind of reskinned it to fit it into the Forgotten Realms, um, which is why it's set in those aisles as opposed yeah. <laughs> to So yeah, exactly, right? Like you look back and you're like, oh I guess that makes sense. Um but I mean I think in a lot of cases it was uh either people who were on the inside or sort of tangentially related. Um because they were they were starting something new, you know. I think as time went on, you saw more and more sort of outside authors being pulled in. Uh, but I think it it started as very much a, a grassroots in house thing, as far as I know. Because uh-huh. yeah, wasn't Margaret Weiss an editor at PSR like at the time and when they started writing those books? It could could very well be. I would not be surprised at all. <laughs> To Winty, uh, John said that you said that you wanted to be Margaret Weiss when you grew up. <laughs> I did. When I was, I think when I was about probably 10 or 11, I just, you know, part of the reason why I ever picked out these books is because they were by, well, I, like a dodo as a kid, thought that it was by two girls. And I just thought that was <laughs> You know what? I thought that until I met Tracy Hickman. <laughs> <laughs> so you're not the I, only one. I'm pretty sure they've got author photos out there somewhere. <laughs> Anyway, I just remember thinking, like, wow, these people must be so cool. They write these exciting books. I just think that Margaret Weiss just would be the coolest person to be when I grow up. And, you know, I, I guess I'm halfway to that goal, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, you know, it's funny because, like, Margaret is uh, the reputation I've always heard of her is that she is basically the nicest woman in gaming. Uh, and that's certainly been my experience as well. So, a good role model to aspire to. Excellent. <laughs> Well, let's see. I mean, with these, I mean, with these set, I mean, these settings have so much detail. Uh, you almost must must have to do like a research project to be able to write a book set in like the <laughs> Dragonlance or Forgotten Realms, right? I mean, how how much does an individual author have to know about these settings before they can write a book set in it? I mean, the the more the better, as far as I'm concerned. But that said, I consider, and I don't know if this is true of everybody, but I consider my job as the editor to sort of also be the research assistant and take as much of that burden off an author as possible because I I know that you know we've been we've got hundreds of books that we've published over just the last like 5 years um and I don't expect authors to read all of that I could read all of that uh if I, you know if I didn't work here um so I really try to talk to authors and find out you know, I'll give them like the setting Bible and say, okay, well, here's sort of the top level thing of what all these nations are about. You know, what sort of story do you want to do? What catches your eye as you flip through? Um, and then if somebody says something, uh, you know, I want to do this type of story, then I try to point them toward the region where that mat, you know, would fit best. Or if they say, I really want a cleric of a good God, then I'd say, oh, okay, well, you know, do you want Saren Ray or do you want, you know, uh, Iomaday, you know, like these various things, um, because it, it can be totally overwhelming. Um, at the at the same time, I think the ability to sit down with something like the Inner Sea World Guide, which is our setting bible, 
and just flip through looking at pictures until you see something that speaks to you. I mean, as an author, that's kind of great, right? Like that, that sort of prompt gets you past the terror of the blank page. I was going to say, I think James did a really good job. Uh, the way that he supported me in my work is, uh, you know, I, I started with that inner sea world guide, but every project, James was really good about sending, saying, okay, well, here's some fiction that came from that area. And here's uh, an extra information about these monster types that you're going to be running into. So there's a lot of like sub publications, smaller things that I think a lot of people who aren't experts or aren't expert players would really not even know how to find. And so it's great to have somebody with those extra resources to help you flesh things out. And also, Pathfinder Wiki, holy smokes. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, and that's that's huge, is the fans are actually a big help because you've got, uh, you know, wikis and things. I mean, I bet that all the major campaign settings have them, but we use uh, the Pathfinder Wiki, which is fan-run, internally all the time because it's faster for me to figure out using that all the different places we've mentioned uh, a character than trying to do it all by hand you know i've got internal tools as well but um i really love when i've got authors who use that sort of resource uh to really dig down and uh get that extra information it adds a lot of verisimilitude um when an author can name drop small things that aren't even really related to the uh the research material that I sent them. Um, but like the little details uh, really make it clear that they are kind of living in that world, which is above and beyond. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. I think this might be a good time to sort of explain to people who don't know what the relationship is between Dungeons and Dragons and Pathfinder. Um, right. So my understanding is, is that there was kind of a schism in the Dungeons and Dragons community with the release of uh, the fourth edition rules, which, I guess a lot of people felt changed it into basically a different game. You know, and then some people felt that the they preferred the older 3.5 edition rules that were closer to the original Dungeons & Dragons rules. And so the Pathfinder game kind of came out of the people who wanted to stick to the closer to the original rules. But since they don't, didn't own the Dungeons & Dragons IP, they had to invent new um, uh, you know, content for the world. Yeah, you know, for, um, for a pen and paper role-playing game, it was... A lot like uh, a technology, uh, you know, the paradigms are very technology-ish because uh, 3.5, which was the current edition of Dungeons and Dragons, was open source. Anybody could use that rule set, um, which was a brilliant move that Wizards of the Coast had made because it got everybody using the same system. Uh, when 4th edition came out, uh, there wasn't as much backward compatibility uh, as people wanted, um, and it was much more of a closed system. It wasn't as open source. Um, and so, uh, you know, we as a business uh, ultimately decided, like we heard a lot of our fans saying, we want to keep what we have. We don't want to switch and rebuy everything and sort of start from scratch. We've got bookshelves full of this stuff. Um, so the idea with Pathfinder was that we would take the open source 3.5 rules. We would update them and make the you know, the changes that we felt had always needed to be made, you know, simplifying things that were too complicated and, you know, boosting things that were, weren't powerful enough. Um, and really just release that as our sort of updated version of 3.5. Um, and then we would publish it as Pathfinder because, of course, uh, those old 3.5 rule books would no longer be in print and you can't base your company on a game where the core rule books aren't in print. So we had to come out with our own stuff. Um, and then it, 
you know, it was a scary time for us, like, to be perfectly honest. Uh, we had no idea. I mean, Dungeons and Dragons was the 800 pound gorilla. By splitting off, you know, I thought maybe I'd go back to grad school. Um, but, uh, <laughs> it turns out that people really, uh, stuck with us, you know, and stuck with the game and allowed us to build Pathfinder into now what's the best selling role playing game, which has been a really crazy ride for all of us. Mm-hmm. And you were saying that a lot of the Dungeons and Dragons authors have kind of come along with you, right? Oh, sure. I mean, both uh, in terms of on staff, like lots of people, I mean, because Paizo before Pathfinder published the Dungeons and Dragons magazines under license from Wizards. So we were all working on official Dungeons and Dragons stuff before we switched over. And, you know, some of those folks had been there for a really long time. You know, there are authors, uh, you know, like Sean Reynolds, who came to work at Paizo, uh, had been went all the way back to the TSR days, you know? Um, and so we definitely pulled a lot of those people both on our staff and then certainly on our authors. I mean, I've had in the novel line, uh, been able to bring in people like, you know, uh, Ed Greenwood, who created the Forgotten Realms and Elaine Cunningham, who was a very prominent Forgotten Realms author and Dave Gross, who wrote for some of those settings as well. You know, we've really been able to, uh, draw a lot of those people, uh, well, at the same time, finding new people, because I be- believe that new blood is really important. And actually, I'm thrilled when I get authors who have never done tie-in stuff before who want to work for Pathfinder, because I feel like uh, I really want to heal that divide where people say, oh, well, I I read fantasy, but I wouldn't read tie-in, or, you know, people who love tie-in but don't read a lot outside. Like, I really think that we can kind of just be one big community. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, Wendy, speaking of some new blood here uh, coming in, uh, do you just want to say what your experience was? Um, like, how did your book come about and what was it like writing in the Pathfinder setting and stuff like that? Sure. Well, you know, I, uh, I had never played Pathfinder. I had only, I think at the time when I was talking to James, I maybe started reading maybe something by Elaine Cunningham. I wasn't sure, but I, didn't, I knew nothing about the world. Um, but I, I'd done a lot of short fiction. I'd even, I'd written a bunch of novels that hadn't gone anywhere. And, um, I, because of meeting, because James knew the ink punks, he had done this blog post for us about what it's like to write tie-in fiction. And I messaged him on Twitter saying, whoa, that was a cool blog post. I'd totally get into that gig. You know, it just seems like a great world to work in. He was like, oh, well, send me a submission packet. So I was actually, I'd been thinking on applying to, to write for Wizards of the Coast. And so I submitted to James and, uh, he thought I showed some potential. So I started out writing, um, I wrote one web serial, a three part story about a lady who's a pirate, a former pirate named Jandara. And the fans really seemed to like it. And they were incredibly encouraging. And, um, their feedback was so positive that James said, well, let's see if you go to Brookenia. So I came up with some ideas and he finally helped me figure out what we should do. And, and so we wrote this book. To- I say we wrote this book together. I wrote this book. <laughs> All the genius parts, I think, really came from James. So. Yeah, and see, I'd say uh, Wendy did all the work. But actually, I think what really got to me about her character was I feel like it's so rare that you see a single mother in fantasy being like a total badass Viking pirate. You know, just like that. <laughs> The combination of the, this is a, you know, butt kicking, you know, Conan style, like, uh, fighter lady 
who also is a devoted single mother, like struggling with the issues around that. Um, and I thought that that had some real heart and that it was something I hadn't seen a lot um, in RPG fiction. You know, I really always want to kind of push the boundaries of, uh, you know, what is just sort of the standard content one would think of for an RPG tie-in novel, because this is a world where any type of story can be told. You know, I was in a bookstore a couple of years ago and this, I don't know, this kid came in, I think he was maybe 12 or something with his dad, and he just picked up all the R.A. Salvatore uh, Dritz books and, and said, I want these. And his dad kind of looked at them and said, oh, this is what you want for your birthday? And, and the kid's like, yeah, yeah. And so he got him. Um, and that kind of made me happy to see that kids are still buying those books because uh, I have the sense, I don't know, I mean, maybe it's just because I'm not. 12 anymore but i don't hear i don't i don't have a sense of how many people are still reading the Dragonlance chronicles and stuff and i did hear an interview with tracy hickman where he and margaret weiss had written the latest Dragonlance book but in the meantime uh was it wizards of, uh, you can correct me wizards of the coast had been acquired by mattel or something like that and oh, wizards is owned by hasbro oh, has has hasbro and he said that like they couldn't like he had sent in the latest book and just nobody responded to him and that the company, and this went on for months. <laughs> and, uh, you know, this is this guy who's written 13 something bestselling, New York Times bestselling books. And it was just like nobody at, like, ha- like books were such a low priority at Hasbro that nobody would even, like, it wasn't that they didn't like the book or anything. They just couldn't even, nobody would bother getting around to, you know, looking at it. And I don't know. I just wonder what is the current status of those, those official Dungeons and Dragons books? Are they still big? Uh, what's the, I don't know. What do you think? Well, I mean, it, it depends. Um, and I mean, Publishing is, and especially game publishing, is kind of a a swamp. No matter how you look at it, like it's there's lots of people who are very passionate, uh, but publishing's a hard business, and things uh, there's not always as much money in it as people think there are, and so you can end up with a lot of people trying to, uh, you know, catch assignments here or there as, as they can. Um, so I have no idea what went on there, but uh, but I guess the status of a lot of the older campaign settings. Uh, really depends. I know that Wizards has relaunched some of the old ones and that there's new fiction. I mean, there was even a new Dark Sun book. I think I saw that Robert Schwab wrote a new Dark Sun book a couple years ago. Um, so they're still putting out some material. And I think that, I believe that Margaret Weiss either has or had for a while the, uh, the license to do Dragonlance stuff for her own company. She's got her own publishing company, uh, that she, you know, does all her writing for. Um, so, I mean, on the one hand, I think that there's definitely still love for those old settings. At the same time, I also completely understand, um, from a business sense, why people want to push new things. You know, they don't, those old books aren't going to make you nearly the same sort of money as if you can get something new and fresh that catches on. Um, so, I mean, I, I don't think we're ever going to see like, you know, the birthright setting suddenly rise to the top again. Um, Cause I think people are more focused on trying to get uh, the new out there. Um, well, I mean, speaking of the new James, you want to tell us about your new book, the redemption engine? <laughs> I would love to. Um, so the redemption engine is a sequel to death's heretic, which was my first novel. Um, and it's set in the pathfinder world. And it's all about uh, this main character, Salim, who's comes from our atheist nation of Rahadum, but of course, being an atheist in a world where gods are objectively provably real, uh, makes for kind of a weird life for him. Uh, 
Because, I mean, like any cleric walking down the street, if you say, is God real, they can just cast a divination spell and ask God, and God will be like, yup. And so there's, <laughs> uh, you know, how do you deal with that? Um, and so, of course, he ends up through some fairly major mistakes in his life, ending up working for the goddess of death as kind of an enforcer, tracking down souls that have gone missing. And in, uh, in the, um, the redemption engine, uh, it's very much a story of him trying to track down all these souls that are being stolen essentially from hell. Uh, you know, people, somebody is murdering sinners and then the souls are never making it to hell. Um, so the devils are naturally really upset about that because they're being denied their due. Um, but there's also these questions of like, well, but is stealing from devils really wrong? And like, if, you know, if these souls are escaping judgment, that's bad. But at the same time, um, you know, is it, is it wrong to rob the devil and sort of like chip away at his power? So there's lots of kind of moral ambiguity and crazy monsters and weird, weird cultures and characters. Cause like I said about Planescape, I really love the more bizarre landscapes and creatures, the better. Mm hmm. Actually, you know, the, the religious themes kind of reminds me of something else about Dragonlance I had wanted to bring up. The, in the Dragonlance Legends series, uh, we find it, they, somehow they end, the characters end up traveling back in time to uh, before an event called the Cataclysm, which was this big world-destroying event that was in the, uh, had happened previously, be before the original series picks up. And, they, and there's this, uh, he's kind of like the Pope. He's called the King Priest of Ishtar. And he demands of the gods that they destroy all the evil creatures in the world. And the gods are so upset about this that they throw a fiery mountain down on top of him. And this breaks the world and also all hell breaks loose. <laughs> and I don't know. I just thought that was always really cool that these fantasy books are dealing with that kind of, uh, those kinds of themes. Yeah. I mean, that, that question of like, if, I mean, first off, alignment art arguments are like one of the great nerd arguments and have been for 30 or 40 years at this point, you know, what is actually good versus actually evil and do the ends justify the means? And like, honestly, all of those metaphysical arguments that stretch back to the dawn of time. Um, but I really enjoy it in the context of a game where we say, uh, you know, at least in Dungeons and Dragons and Pathfinder and games like that, there's an absolute alignment system. So you say, well, these angels are creatures of pure good and these uh, devils are creatures of pure lawful evil. Um, but how does that actually work when you start interacting with people, right? You know, like, and what is the interaction between lawful and good? Does good mean that you follow all the laws or does good mean that you, you know, follow some of the laws except for sometimes? Like, I think that you can argue endlessly about that and I'm fascinated by it. I mean, that's, a, that's actually like one of the, uh, one of the great internal, because we have these battles internally all the time about alignment systems. One of my favorite things I've put in the campaign setting is there's this uh, island called Hermea where there's a gold dragon and gold dragons are always lawful good, um, or at least presented as always lawful good, running what's essentially a giant eugenics experiment because he feels like humans aren't living up to their potential. They're always killing each other and being nasty. And so he runs this thing where he invites the best and the brightest to his island. Um, to come make a utopia, except that you have to agree to basically defer to his, uh, judgment in all things. And so, and he's, he really is trying to breed the human race, which on the one hand, you're like, 
well, I see where he's coming from, but then as soon as you put it in the context of like, well, isn't that kind of eugenics? Then everybody's like, but, so is he lawful good or not? Um, or is that actually evil, you know? Um, and you know, and I won't, I'm not in the business of telling people, you know, one or the other, but I think that the debate itself is really useful and that moral ambiguity is one of the ways the game can really kind of help us uh, have conversations that we maybe wouldn't have in our normal lives. Hmm. See, Wendy, do you have any uh, reactions to any of this stuff? Well, I, I was just thinking, like, one of the, the really fun things that we worked on kind of in, like, the revision process of my novel was sort of looking at, you know, the, this crux at the heart of the character of Jandara. She, you know, she was a pirate. She was a thief and a crook and a, you know, a criminal who killed and murdered people for her own gain. And now she's trying to, you know, lead this good life and be like a good mom and be a good person and find a new place in her community. And James was really careful to like, not let her just brush her past under the rug or just justify it to be like, oh, no, we, we didn't really hurt anybody. He really wanted her to have this like, this dark side of her that she has to live with every single day. And I just think like, that's to me, the best part of the book. And I'm really glad that James encouraged that. And I think it comes from him having this interest in exploring this mor the moral issues inside the game world. I feel like it's really important to have that sort of reality to characters. I think that nobody you meet in the real world is totally good or totally evil. So why would they be in your fiction or, you know, in your game fiction? And that's something that has been really interesting to watch the fan reaction. Because, um, I, I mean, I've helmed the novel line since its its inception. And so my my tastes there are definitely well represented. And I see, I do occasionally see people saying, can't we just have heroes who are just <laughs> heroic? You know, like, I just want my paladin who does the right thing all the time and never has to question or doubt. Um, and, you know, the the way I feel is that if you never have to question the righteousness of your cause, you're probably not a good guy. Um, <laughs> yes. you know, I, mean, I, think, I think that absolute confidence uh, leads to corruption. Um, and so I think that, well, I do try to give people, you know, some paladins and some good characters who aren't just like, you know, who are more than just 51% good. Uh, <laughs> I do think that it's important to show well-rounded characters who have a wide variety of um, you know, foibles going along with their their good traits. All right, cool. So, so th this has turned out to be a really appropriate uh, panel to go along with my Richard Garrett interview. So Yay. that's, uh, that's really good. Um, but we're you know we've we're, we should probably start <laughs> wrapping this up now. So, yeah. um, but so James, um, let's see the Redemption Engine. Do, do people need to read Death's Heretic? To read the Redemption um, Engine? No, it uh, it stands alone. Uh, that said, if you want to pick Death's Heretic up, uh, Redemption Engine doesn't come out for two months, so there's still time to get uh, get all caught up. And is this going to be a trilogy? You know, I I in my heart of hearts, I would like it to be, um, which would sort of make this My Empire Strikes Back. Um, but that still is yet to be determined. Um, right now, they're both standalone novels that. I think benefit from reading each other, but I don't think that you have to. Mm -hmm. And so, Wendy, you have what do you have uh, coming up in the future? Well, uh, Skinwalkers comes out at the end of this month, so that's really exciting. 
Um, and then I've also been working on all this great stuff for Lightspeed for the Women Destroy Science Fiction and Women Destroy Horror and Women Destroy Fantasy. So a lot of projects going on. All right, great. So I think we're going to wrap things up there. So James L. Sutter, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And Wendy N. Wagner, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Steve. And, of course, big thanks again to Richard Garriott for being our guest today. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Sagosa in the U.S. and Cycling Mojo in Canada. Also a huge thank you to all of our crowdfunders, including Iris Manhold, crowdfunder number 69, Kurt Donaldson, crowdfunder number 62, and Scott Osterling, crowdfunder number 57, who just became the latest listener to be making monthly contributions to the show. So again, huge thanks to all of you. To learn more, visit our website at geeksguideshow.com and click on crowdfunding. I'd also like to dedicate this episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy to the memory of my grandmother, Barbara Kirtley, who passed away this week at the age of 91. When I was a little kid, she was the only person I knew who owned a VCR, and I watched her VHS tape of the original Star Wars every time we visited her. Her house is where I first came across my Uncle Bill's old copy of the original Ultima, and where I first played Ultima V with my cousin Ted. Grandma drove me to the store first thing in the morning so we could get Super Mario Bros. 2 on the day of its release, and she happily bought me numerous Dungeons & Dragons supplements, including the 2nd edition Monsters Compendium Volume 2, despite having no idea what they were. Obviously, she also did a lot of really nice things for me that didn't involve movies or games, but in the interest of time, I'm just focusing on stuff relevant to the podcast. And speaking of the podcast, for the past few years, I've been driving over to her house every time I needed to record anything for this show, since her internet service has been more reliable than mine. Without her help, I'm not sure how I would have kept doing the podcast. It's entirely possible I would have given up. Grandma always listened proudly to every episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy, despite having no interest whatsoever, as far as I could tell, in anything even remotely connected to fantasy and science fiction. Doing this podcast has meant I've spent a lot more time at her house these past few years than I would have otherwise, and now I'm very grateful for that. So big thanks to everyone who's encouraged us along the way for giving me that opportunity. And also, of course, a huge, huge thank you to Barbara Kirtley for all her love and support over the years. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.